0: Good afternoon. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women. And I want to thank you all for coming today and welcome to our September Conservative Women's Network. Special thank you to Heritage Foundation, represented today by co host Charmaine Yost, who is vice president of Heritage Foundation's Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity. Heritage and Claire Booth Luce have had this uh, luncheon now for. More than 20 years, and it's just a great partnership. We love it. Now I'm pleased to introduce today's distinguished speaker, Mary Epperstadt. Mary is a senior research fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute in Washington, DC, and author of this great new book, Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics, which she's going to talk about today. She's also agreed to stay and sign copies of her books uh, after her remarks if you'd like to purchase one. Mary's other books include, It's Dangerous to Believe, How the West Really Lost God, Adam and Eve After the Pill. Her writing has appeared in many magazines and journals including Time, The Wall Street Journal, National Review, First Things, and The Weekly Standard. Her 2010 novel, The Loser Letters, about a young woman in rehab struggling with atheism, was adapted for stage and premiered at Catholic University in the fall of 2017. Seton Hall University awarded her an honorary doctorate in humane letters in 2014. During the Reagan administration, she was a speechwriter to the Secretary of State, George Shultz, and a special assistant to Ambassador Jean J. Kirkpatrick at the United Nations. She's also a founder of the Kirkpatrick Society named after her late mentor. Mary grew up in rural upstate New York and graduated magna cum laude from Cornell University, where she was a four-year Telluride scholar. She's married to author and demographer Nicholas Eberstadt, and they have a wonderful family of four children. Mary, I read the book. What a great discussion of one of the not very much discussed consequences of the breakdown of the family and the extended family, which is a fundamental source of human identity. Lacking a family, people can be adrift and asking, who am I? And it's created these identity-based tribes that perpetuate identity politics and some of this current culture of outrage. To talk about a great new book, Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. Please join me in welcoming Mary Eberstedt. Thank you very much.
1: I was so swept away listening to your description of the book that I just thought maybe you could talk about the book with (laughs) such energy um, and enthusiasm. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here among friends. So I'd like to start today with a little thought experiment. If we step outside the 24-7 news cycle and survey our society from above, what particular features might we see? Features that distinguish us from the Americans who have gone before. Well, one such signature development amounts to a remarkable fact. We live in a time when a great many people are struggling to answer the most basic question, who am I? Identities of all kinds have proliferated. Ethnic identities, gender identities, feminist and other political identities. And in Primal Screams, I'm asking why. How did it ever come to pass that unlike any generation before us, so many Americans today don't know who we are until we can answer that question by way of attachment to some collective group. I wanted to address that confusion and to see what's really driving it. My thesis in a nutshell is this. Our macro politics have become a mania of identity because our micro politics are no longer familial. So. Primal Screams continues the line of argument in a previous book, How the West Really Lost God, published in 2013. That book asked a similar question. How had it come to pass that, unlike almost all the generations before us, ours was increasingly turning its back on God and falling away from organized religion? That book argued that conventional accounts of the decline of Christianity were insufficient, and that a new theory was in order. The contemporary emptying of the churches was due instead to social transformations following the sexual revolution. These changes, I argued, had served to interrupt the transmission belt of religious learning. Religion is practiced and learned in community, including the community of the family. And post-1960s, disrupting that figurative classroom amounted to. eroding the language of faith. So the present book, Primal Screams, is a logical follow-up to that. Uh, It takes the argument about radical social change and applies it to the other big part of the picture, politics. It focuses on the fact that questions of identity and identity politics have now become central to American life. The book asks why this happened and proposes an answer that is not like others to have come before. Now, many voices, whether they approve of identity politics or are opposed to them, have discussed what this new code of uh, conduct is doing to us. But my book asks a different question, which is what the obsession with identity is telling us about ourselves and our civilization. My purpose is not to excoriate such politics, as many writers already have done. It's rather to put forward a new theory about why so many of us seem to have lost our very selves, with the result that Western polities and societies now resound with languages of loss, fury, and rancor. So in the time that follows, I'd like to offer a couple of examples of the book's overall argument. One set of facts linking today's massive confusion about identity to the decline of the family is simple. It amounts to arithmetic, or more particularly, subtraction. Think of all the post-revolutionary phenomena that are now everyday facts of life. Abortion on a mass scale, fatherlessness on a mass scale, divorce, single parenthood, childlessness, the shrinking family, the shrinking extended family. Every one of these developments has the net effect of reducing the number of people we can call our own. And since we are social animals and relational creatures, the result is a great vacuum. And that vacuum is a lot of what the increasingly panicked flight to collective identities is about. As I try to emphasize in the book, the focus of this argument is not on any single act of individual choice. And it's not even on the moral content of those acts. Instead, Primal Screams is about the collective environmental impact of many, many millions of such instantiations of autonomy taken over the course of the last 50 plus years. Now, many Americans, including many conservatives, believe that the liberated uh, post-1960s order is a net plus for humanity. Many people would also say that their own lives have been enhanced and mightily by the freedoms that only the sexual revolution could convey. But if we step back from our solipsistic selves and ask instead what those same changes have delivered collectively, an unsettling picture appears. As the book lays out, to study the timeline is to see that identity politics has grown in tandem with the sexual revolution. Along the way, there have been some important signposts signaling just how radical our new social environment has become. I want to mention a couple of these. Almost 20 years ago, in his 2000 book, Bowling Alone, political scientist Robert D. Putnam mapped the dislocations of declining communities and associations. And that's one kind of empirical measure to uh, to guide how radically life has changed. Who am I could once be answered by reference to one's bowling league or one's role as a scout leader or other forms of civic engagement. To some extent, they still can, but as Putnam's work was already demonstrating 20 years ago, these kinds of possible answers to identity were in decline and still are. So around the same time Putnam was writing, one of the most eminent social scientists of the 20th century, James Q. Wilson, summarized decades of social science in a famous speech given to the American Enterprise Institute called the Two Nations. He made a similar point. American society had changed at the root as measured by many indices and surveys and studies. He identified the fracturing of the country in the dissolution of the family, which had given rise to what he called the two nations of America. The dividing line between these nations, Wilson argued, was no longer income or social class. Instead, it had become all about the hearth. It is not money, he wrote, but the family that is the foundation of public life. And as it has become weaker, every structure built upon it has become weaker. So the important take home here was that family structure, as Wilson's work and that of many other social scientists was showing, had become more important to positive outcomes than race, income, or station at birth. Yet even as compelling as it is, that small library of social science isn't the only way that of affirming that the fractured post-1960s order was raising fundamental questions of identity. Pop culture weighs in here too. 15, 15 years ago, in an essay called Eminem is Right, published in Policy Review, I documented something that seemed then and still seems to be a seminal fact. Family rupture, family anarchy, and family breakup had become the signature themes of Generation X and Generation Y pop. Here's a short summary. If yesterday's rock was the music of abandon, today's is that of abandonment. The odd truth about contemporary teenage music, the characteristic that most separates it from what has gone before, is its compulsive insistence on the damage wrought by broken homes. Family dysfunction checked out parents, and especially absent fathers. Papa Roach, Everclear, Blink 182, Good Charlotte, Eddie Vedder, and Pearl Jam, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, Snoop Doggy Dog, and above all, Eminem, all had their own answer to what ails the modern teenager. And surprising though it may be, that answer is dysfunctional childhood. Or to put it in another way, during the same years that progressive minded and politically correct adults were excoriating Ozzie and Harriet, probably most people here are too young to know who Ozzie and Harriet are, but they're the most maligned couple in the history of television because they had an intact family. During the same years that Ozzie and Harriet were being excoriated as artifacts of 1950s oppression, millions of American teenagers were simultaneously enshrining a new generation of music idols whose shared signature in song after song was to rage about what not having had a family did to them. Now, that's my review of the music. And during those years, the 1990s and early 2000s, identity politics was not yet the omnipresent headline that it's become today. But even so, the effect of family decline on the sense of oneself was already being writ large across this music. A lot of those songs are about rage at the status quo, about wanting to be somewhere else, about wanting to be someone else, and about fury at adults who play revolving roles in children's lives. So in other words, a lot of popular music in the decades leading up to now, uh, we're already revealing a cratering sense of identity on the part of many American kids. And this is above all true for Eminem, who is the Greek chorus of family dysfunction. So long before today's identity panics on campuses and elsewhere, a lot of young America was already stumbling over how to answer the question, who am I? Just listening to what they were driving up the charts proved the point. So there are other proofs and signposts and primal screams uh, about how we got to where we are, but now I would like to fast forward to where we are today. This is a sobering place. At the national level, we see the divisiveness of identity politics. A new and crabbed and restrictive anthropology of the human person According to which, you cannot understand me unless you match my coordinates on the intersectionality grid. Simultaneously, we see other signs of disunity and pathology. Declining life expectancy for the first time in recorded American history. A spate of mass shootings. Rising psychiatric trouble, especially among the young. This is something that I've been trying to zero in on for years now in three books. And at first this seemed controversial, now it is just taken for granted. Uh, There's also rising loneliness among the old and the young. uh, New phenomena like white nationalism and of course the opioid epidemic, unprecedented drug addiction. So I think The radical fact that our society is worsening by various measures calls for a radical new look at what ails us. And this brings me back to the thesis of Primal Screams. It argues that the post 1960s social phenomena have amounted to a massive perturbation of the human ecosystem. That these effects are increasingly visible as well as harmful. And that they are now playing out in politics where many dislocated individuals are frantically trying to answer the question, who am I, in political terms because they cannot answer it anywhere else. Now, I should say, since we can't talk about these things without thinking about ourselves, that the the net effects of family and community breakdown are not affecting everyone equally, obviously. Uh, This is not about individuals. It's about our collective environment. And just as a factory dumping toxins into a lake will affect some fish more than others for reasons that scientists don't understand, so it is here. This is not about any single choice, but about how all of them taken together have reduced the gravitational pull of traditional identity and here we have a critical stipulation. Of course, racism, sexism, and other forms of cruelty exist. Cruelties exist, period. And they're always and everywhere to be opposed by civilized people. Primal screams does not make a monocausal argument about this. And in some cases, clearly, injustice is driving people to embrace collective identities. As mentioned in the book, for example, it made sense when Native Americans and other people objected to a particular runway show of Victoria's Secret in which a model wore a headdress, a sacred to Native American tradition, and paraded in it and little else. The outcry about stories like that makes sense. And it also makes sense when African Americans and others object to the existence of public reminders of racism, such as certain statues honoring certain figures. My point is that in a healthier political environment, conversations about instances like this could be engaged uh, on a case-by-case basis by reasonable people. But that is not where we are. It's certainly not where identity politics is. Identity politics is not expressed in a rational vernacular. Look at the demonstrations on some campuses these days, the stomping, screaming, monosyllabic protests, the protesters who duct tape their mouths shut in a frenzied attempt to shut down speakers. Look in plain English at what happened at Middlebury College. A gang of young men physically attacked a middle aged woman and a man in his, his 70s. These outbursts are not politics as usual. They are dangerous exercises in collective irrationalism. Or look at the protests by feminists on the National Mall in 2017, or on the steps of the Supreme Court following decisions that affect abortion. Those protests have involved screaming, weeping, and dancing on such a scale that numerous observers have noted that they more resemble Uh, revivalist meetings or raves than political protests. And this, again, is my point. In much of what passes for politics these days, and feminism is the oldest form of identity politics, we are not seeing reasoned debate. We are seeing pre-rational assertions of identity. And that's what makes such politics hard to contend with to, to anyone who's not part of them. Just as political and other new identities have become substitutes for the more robust identities of community and family, so are these new identities defended with the kind of passion that most people once brought to defending their families and communities. The bottom line is that politics is now being increasingly driven by primordial needs and desires that have been detoured into politics And that's why the book is called Primal Screams. In sum, the chronic regression to pre-adolescent language and behavior is testimony to something important about identity politics, its pre-rational origins. In closing, the question, who am I, is a universal human question. We are teleological creatures. We can't help but ask it. And it becomes harder to answer if other basic questions are problematic or out of reach. Who is my brother? Who is my father? Where, if anywhere, are my cousins, grandparents, nieces, nephews, and the rest of the organic connections through which humanity up until now has channeled existence and acquired identity? Every one of those assumptions that our forebears could take for granted are now negotiable. And as another closely related matter, the other traditional way of answering the universal question by reference to religious faith is now also off the table for many people. For millennia, most human beings have answered the question who am I by appeal to a different kind of familial relationship. I am a child of God, right? That's what is essential to my identity, my relationship to God my father Not my sex, not my skin color, not my erotic desires, not any of these substitutes uh, for traditional identity. So just as the family answered the question of identity via one's place in the order of it, so has religion answered that question via one's place in the divine order. And now we live in an age of rising religious illiteracy. And so one more answer to the question of identity is increasingly off limits to many people. Now, in closing, I would like to say just a few words about the contributors to this book. It closes with three commentaries. Uh, Columbia University Mark Lilla is among the commentators, and although he disagrees with much of the thesis, since he is a prominent liberal, Um, he does engage the book respectfully and with civility and so do the other contributors Rod Dreher social conservative and Peter Thiel libertarian leaning student of the French-born philosopher Rene Girard who also figures in this book somewhat so that we all have our differences but we all hoped with this book to set an example of civil disagreement on purpose We wanted to set an example that was at odds with the incivility of identity politics. Our hope, our mutual hope, is to open a conversation where none yet exists. And it's a conversation that I think is both necessary and overdue. In the end, as noted in the book, discussion of today's crisis over identity concerns anthropology more than it does politics. Since the sexual revolution, we have been bearers of a false anthropology that overestimates our solitary selves and underestimates our need for one another in the most elemental of ways. That conviction is why I wrote How the West Really Lost God and now this new book. That's the consensus that Primal Screams is trying to change. Thank you very much. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you so much for that, Mary. I found that to be very thought provoking and I'm very honored and glad to be moderating Q&A and I'm going to take a moderator's privilege and and start the questioning so that you guys can be thinking about um, what you would like to ask. Um, And given, I think it's particularly appropriate for this particular audience, I'd like to add one small addendum to your bio. That I do think is relevant and that I know personally, which is that Mary was able to form a powerhouse marital partnership with um, that is, you know, well known here in DC. Both you and your husband, in your respective expertise, is that I think is together as a makes, um, you know, the is exponential as opposed to additive. and that truly, as someone who is a conservative author, should be something that would be the envy of uh, feminist um, thinkers, although I doubt <laughs> that they would be willing to admit that. And, and together they've also raised some really, really remarkable um, children. And part of the reason I start with that is that I was particularly struck by um, your explication of this identity formation having shifted away from that family unit you know i grew up in a small town where my maiden name being a kraus meant something and still to this day i met someone the other day who knew my family and it was really meaningful to me to be recognized as a kraus it's part of my identity and but I'm sitting here thinking, you know, as you're going through musical examples of the change in our culture, I'm thinking of some other examples of how things have changed. I mean, I'm wondering, even in this audience, do you, do some of you younger ones still resonate with stories like West Side Story or Hatfields and McCoys? I mean, I'm just wondering if there's a generation where the intensity of the conflict between family units even means something anymore. Um, so when you, when you have that kind of degradation of association, of, of a whole generation that doesn't necessarily even understand what it means to form that kind of marital partnership because they haven't seen it in their communities, um, how, do you, how do you start to rebuild that? Where, what, where's the path forward as we um, try to recreate those models for young people?
1: Well, first of all, let me establish instantly that I don't hold myself up as an exemplar and that our poor children, having grown up with two writers in the house, not one, but two, are always going to wonder what it would have been like to have normal parents. (laughs) And they've made that point more than once. (laughs) Um, How to rebuild, well, so, I wish I had written the kind of book that comes with 10 bullet points at the end and says, now let's do this. But this is not really a policy book. I think we have a lot of collective hard work ahead of us um, given the tenacity out there, given the resistance to this kind of argument, and given that there aren't going to be easy answers. But the first thing we have to do is get the diagnosis right. We have to understand where identity panic is really coming from And right now, there are several answers out there that are not the right answers. It is not coming from the patriarchy, right? It's not coming from the gender binary. It's really interesting how people have reached for abstractions like this when the real answer to people's suffering is something that's much closer to home. I think literally so. But as with anything, if we don't get the diagnosis right, If we end up throwing money at the patriarchy problem or the the binary problem, we're not going to get anywhere. So the first hope is that the diagnosis is convincing enough uh, to give people a little shock of reality, after which they might start to think.
2: Well, I think that's a really, um, if people hear nothing else today, I hope they hear that because I think for those of us who are working to engage in the public square, we frequently come at these debates from a policy perspective and we want to be arguing policy and then we're so stunned when we come up against emotionalism. And why is it emotional? Because it is a question of identity to them. And if you don't understand that dynamic and don't find a way to grapple it, find a way to talk across that divide, then you there it's it's not a real conversation so let me throw this open and um, hear from our audience is there someone who'd like to answer ask a question and we do have a microphone over here so if you wouldn't mind telling us who you are and um, locate yourself <laughs> who, who are you as you <laughs> ask the question
0: <laughs> hi my name is Kim I'm an intern here at Heritage um, you talked about the subtraction culture that kind of arose post 1960. I was wondering if you have any ideas why that occurred, the subtraction and loss of the of abortion, divorce, fatherlessness, why that all seemed to happen around the same time?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, especially since fewer people remember a world where those trends didn't rule. I mean, I don't. So trying to reconstruct the history of the 1960s. In the beginning, I think people were really optimistic uh, about the technological shock of the birth control pill in particular. And this was said to be something that would be better for marriages, uh, allow people more freedom. Uh, And then as in every society that adopts mass contraception of a chemical nature, a few years later, oops, you have abortion on demand because it is always and everywhere the backstop. The same pattern is held in Argentina, in Ireland, in any country you look at. So in the beginning, uh, people thought that uh, this new way of living would be good. And then came abortion on a scale that no one anticipated. And then came the sexual marketplace being flooded with potential partners, which starts driving up the rate of marital breakup. So for reasons that I don't think anybody really foresaw with the possible exception of the very most pessimistic observers, um, rates of fatherlessness, abortion, uh, family breakup, all of these things start skyrocketing at the same time. And you know, here and there over the years, you might see a little plateau, but basically uh, they remain at levels no one anticipated that are, in the history of our species, um, something historically anomalous. As best I can reconstruct the timeline, it goes something like that. Mm -hmm. Next
2: question. Hi, my name is Riley. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm a heritage intern here. My question is about Hollywood and how do we push back against the impact of celebrities or Hollywood elite that creates entertainment such as The Handmaid's Tale or Normalizes Abortion or the Breakup of Families? How do we respond to that um, with the ideas in the primal screams?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm trying to think of like relevant examples of where in history you've been able to peel people off by rewarding them. I think we have to keep in mind that Hollywood's not a monolith. And we need to think subversively about this and be active about finding people who are part of it who are not of that mindset. um, And bring them into a network and reward them. Um, Just By way of small but meaningful example, uh, I am uh, involved with a group called the Merry Beggars, which is a new 501c3 dedicated to finding uh, actors—I mean, young actors—in New York and elsewhere who will not do, you know, the obligatory nude scene, who will not otherwise violate their principles. And what we're trying to do is bring people together. Um, someone with a lot more resources and organizational power than I have might think of doing that on a, a bigger scale. Um, but I think it's going to be that kind of infiltration from within and the, the holding up and supporting of people in the minority position that's going to make a difference to the, to the culture down the road.
2: Do we have a question over here? I always want to make sure we get people on our on our wings or
1: You brought up about
2: fake tribes, and it immediately made me think of social media and how people sort of form these little groups on social media via hashtags or different um, media that they use. And I was um, wondering if you have any thoughts about kind of how that, um, you know, kind of puts people into these false groups that you feel like you're part of something, but actually maybe there's something kind of false about it. Thank you.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt. Social media is like throwing gasoline on a fire. I mean, it contributes to all of this. And people seek it out, again, because they're disconnected from real life, right? And they go finding, and I believe this has been studied pretty well by now, they go finding identities online that reaffirm that this is their identity, et cetera. But as bad as it is, and I think it's really bad, Social media is not what created this world. Uh, And I say that because identity politics predates the internet. What most sociologists agree to is that the founding document of identity politics was a statement by an African-American radical feminist collective in 1977. So this is well before the digital age. And that's the first place that people think the phrase identity politics was used and it's also An expression of what we would come to take for granted is just, you know, the the world we live in, a world where, as the document says, you know, we no longer trust other people to support us and have our back. We can only rely on each other for that. And that's already a terribly sad statement because most people, at least once upon a time, would say, Who's got my back? My family has my back. So already, 1977. This is like the first generation of people coming of age after the sexual revolution. They already uh, are saying they can't count on the family. And that's why I argue that these two things are joined at the root.
2: You know, that's interesting you're making me think of a conversation that I had recently with um, another woman again I think something that might be interesting to this audience you know so many of us have these ongoing conversations about how do you make things work and we were both lamenting the fact that we don't bake as much as we used to and frequently you'll or, or cook as much as we used to and we're laughing about you know having events where you hire food to come in whereas in the South where I grew up it was you know, always you know it was your responsibility as a woman this is part of your identity to put out the spread is this resonating with anybody I fused to see some heads nodding and after the conversation was over I was thinking about it a little bit more and I thought it wasn't so much that my mother well she is a great cook and she is also a Herculean um, entertainer but um, she also was situated where there were aunts and friends and, you know, you think of the church potluck where it was more, there was more of a community around entertaining and being a hostess and bringing people into the home. Does that resonate with anybody? And that was a helpful check for me in my own mind of my own expectations for my own life, but also a little bit sad in terms of your point of the where this is leaving people feeling adrift.
1: Um. Well, so if we're going to tell stories, I could not make this one up. Yesterday, I was in a taxi. And the taxi driver uh, was bragging about his grandchildren. um, And he had mentioned his wife. So I asked him, how long have you been married? And he said, 32 years. And then he said, and that's the most important thing about me. And I thought, I'm so slow, I had to go write a whole book <laughs> to demonstrate <laughs> that people define their identities relationally. And he just summed it up in a sentence. <laughs> That's fantastic. Do you have any, any more? I have one more, but
2: I'm going to let you go first. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes.
0: And I just want more and more. So I know you said you know the key thing is to, find, to get the root cause out there and not be chasing things that aren't really at the heart of this. And I know the book doesn't really provide a user manual on how to solve this. But, but how do we start making steps towards rectifying and, and riding the ship around this? Do you, do you have thoughts on what to do?
1: I do, and I think we should be um, guardedly hopeful, because you can think of other examples from history Uh, where people have um, taken humanity in a direction that was harmful. These could include any number of drug epidemics, for example, or uh, during the Victorian, pre-Victorian era, the gin alleys of London, you know, these phenomena where people, women, abandoned their children, uh, social mayhem ensued. And these kind of elemental problems tend to generate reformers. And that's what we see in the history of these. Uh, We also see that people are not only social animals, although I think that's, that's terribly important in the argument of the book. But we're also rational animals. And if you think of the example of tobacco smoking, for instance, which 60 years ago was absolutely ubiquitous. I mean, I can remember as a very little girl, that you could smoke in hospital rooms, Mm -hmm. Yeah, as as long as there weren't oxygen tanks. Um, But that example is salient because there was a massive turnaround in public opinion on that subject. And why did it happen? It happened because, you know, uh, Killjoys kept insisting that this is really bad, this is having terrible consequences. It, It happened, you know, because of years of science and social science um, and eventually I think that penetrated so this is part of what I'm trying to do and not just me I can think of a number of scholars who are trying to hold up a mirror you know that finally gets people to say that's it.
0: You know the other issue we've made amazing progress especially young people's life Mm -hmm. I mean we we haven't turned the corner but it gives you hope that things could Can change. If I could just ask you, we talked about the incivility of, you know, the identity politics and the goal here to open a conversation, um, maybe with some that wouldn't normally be in conversation with us. I know it's really early, it just came out, but are there any hints from anybody on the other side or uh, who's spoken about identity politics that maybe? they're stopping and thinking a little more about it now?
1: Well, I was very encouraged by Mark Lilla's contribution in the book. He takes the argument very seriously. And Mark, again, he's a Columbia University professor uh, who is a a proud man of the left. That's how he always describes himself. But he got in trouble with his own side for objecting to identity politics because he thinks it's going to be bad for the Democratic Party. And he published a short manifesto to this effect. the outpouring of vitriol was incredible. That was actually one of the first things that made me really listen to the language of identity politics, you know, this really raw, um, pre-rational, in many cases, vernacular. So I was very encouraged because Mark is critical of the argument, but he takes it seriously and he says that his fellow men and women on the left cannot afford to ignore arguments like this. So. I do think, especially as this way of doing politics alienates more and more people. um, That is, progressives keep kicking out of their own fold, people who cross some line, whether it's about transgender ideology or the use of a pronoun. I mean, there is a growing parade of people who, uh, I mean, Camille Paglia was recently attacked. Mm -hmm. There's a growing roster of names of people who once thought they were in good standing on the left now where are they going to go? Well, I hope, I hope they come here and have a conversation among you know people who are trying to reason together, uh, and I'm I'm pretty hopeful that something like that is going to happen. Some new coalition of the sane who can agree to disagree about important things, but to be civil and to try and move society forward despite that disagreement. I think in a way, identity politics is going to help us in, in this, in this perverse kind of jiu-jitsu sort of way.
2: OK, that's perfect. I always love finding a way to end on a positive, hopeful, chart-forward kind of way. And I also want to navigate us to having enough time so that people can interact with you a little bit individually and also buy a book. Before we uh, before we go to lunch, so Mary, thank you so much for writing this book. Thank you so much, so provocative. everybody. We just we want to give you a gift from Heritage. Aww,
1: thank you. Thank <laughs> you.
2: Thank you for being here. Thank all of you. Mary's going to be right outside where you can get a copy of the book and she'll be signing it. And then at one o'clock, we'll have lunch down in the Shawl conference room, which is this way and then that way. So thank you all so much for being here.
0: Oh, beautiful, thank first. you. you were